Let's pray. Father, we come to you empty-handed. And we pray that we would this morning receive from you. That we would know your grace as your word is explained to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we uh, began this series looking at the opening section of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And through this sermon, I'm sure many of you know it, Jesus will teach with authority on matters of ultimate importance, which we, if we're wise, will not only hear and listen to, but put into practice. But very interestingly, as Jesus opens up on these, these important matters, he begins not with instructions, do this, do that, but plainly the declaration of blessing. Blessed are, flourishing, fortunate, we used that term last week. We might say, how truly good is it for those who? And the list makes us sit up, doesn't it? For it couldn't be more countercultural. It's not the sorted and the strong. It's not the self-assured, the self-confident, the self-reliant. It's not the self-dependent. It, no, it's a self-nothing. Last week, it, we saw that Jesus begins his ministry back in chapter 4 with these words, Turn, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. In verse 23 of that chapter, we read Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in the signals, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom that had come near. God's reign has come in Jesus. And as he gathers his disciples together on this mountainside with a crowd listening in, he begins not by telling them to get busy with this or that or sort this out, but declares the remarkable blessing of God. We sing, don't we, on a Sunday morning sometime, what gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer. There is no more for heaven now to give. In his presence, at his feet, we discover real blessing. Consider the parallel that Matthew is making at this point in the gospel with Moses and the people of Israel at Sinai, Moses on the mountainside receiving the Ten Commandments. But they begin, don't they, with these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Imagine being there, hearing those words declared. We know it was a terrifying experience, but that reality of Weeks earlier, days earlier, a slave in Egypt. No prospect. Life transformed by the intervention, the breaking in of heaven. How much greater with Jesus? To find yourself at his feet, friends, is the best place to live. And as we sit there, he begins with these words, blessed are the poor in spirit. Have you ever been in a place where you feel at the end of your rope? Maybe the end of yourself. Maybe for physical reasons. A health situation 
or periods of stress that finally catch up with you, leaving you exhausted. Maybe it was emotional, grief at the loss of a loved one, or never really coming to terms with the toil of caring for those you love, the demands they make. Maybe it's spiritual. But you've been very zealous for the Lord. Remember Elijah? Mount Horeb? Tired. But not only that, there's this spiritual battle that takes its toll. Perhaps it's a sense of failure. Failure in ministry. Failure in the battle with sin. Maybe it's just growing old. Sometimes that feeling arrives in a sudden, extreme way. Sometimes it's more simply a regular feeling of being jaded or discouraged, like you're on a relentless treadmill that won't stop. See, think about it from our culture's point of view. The marks of being okay, having an admirable life, enviable success, are all about outward appearance and performance. To be seen. We know that pressure, don't we? To be seen in the eyes of our group, to have it all together, to demonstrate that we are self-assured, self-reliant, self-dependent, so easily becomes what we believe to be the anchor of deep happiness. And the impact of that feeling, that approach to life can be so widespread, can't it? Because it will determine how we live. It will shape how we do relationships, how we pursue work how we think about money, how we consume media, and of course, how we pursue the Christian life. And friends, such an approach is exhausting. It's exhausting. And so many people are exhausted. We want to be ourselves, and we want to be loved. And such a mindset of being seen to be about the right things doesn't allow for both. But that is not Jesus' way. Remember his words later in Matthew's Gospel? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will have rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, or in the words of our text this morning, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In both cases, these words, aren't they? They're not for the sorted and the strong, but the weary and the weak. Friends, we'll see that this statement is the good news of Jesus in its simplest, perhaps its purest form. To see that, we're going to unpack it with a series of questions, three questions. What does Jesus mean when he speaks about being poor in spirit? Why is such a condition blessed according to Jesus? And how should Jesus' statement shape us, both as individuals and as a local church? Three steps. Firstly then, what does Jesus mean when he speaks about being poor in spirit. As I've spoken about the experience of being at the end of one's rope, tired, weary, the pressure that we can all feel to perform, to win the acceptance of others, I began there because I think 
that's mo most of us can identify with that. We feel that in our lives in one way or another. But Jesus is actually talking about something deeper. But I want to suggest to you that that weariness that you feel and I feel is the symptom of a deeper condition. A condition to recognize, which to recognize is to be poor in spirit. In Matthew 11, when Jesus speaks those words, come unto me, all you are weary and heavy laden, the implication is, isn't it, that naturally we carry a load that we are unable to bear. Because Jesus says, doesn't he, take my yoke upon me. Walk with me, yoke to me, the, the path I walk. Why? Because Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you will find rest for your souls. The implication is that we are unable, we don't have the strength or resource to be all we long to be. To live the life that we were made for. In Jesus' words, to find the rest that we so desperately search for. And so not surprising that such effort leaves us weary. Fundamentally we are poor. And the word in our text is not simply one who needs the occasional charity, who once or twice has visited a food bank. No, it's someone who is destitute. Destitute in spirit. Destitute spiritually. Spiritually bankrupt. Imagine a new house that you're building, and you get to the stage where you uh, want to connect the water supply. But instead of connecting to the mains water, you somehow manage to connect the taps and the showers to the wastewater system. And so as you turn on the taps, sewage pours out. To be poor in spirit is to be brought to a sense of yourself ourselves of how truly disconnected from the fountain of living water we are the fountain of living water that is christ to sense our sinfulness to sense the corrupt nature of our efforts to be good so often with self-serving motives and so when it comes to you and god me and god we recognize our absolute poverty. Friends, you may be a multi-talented person, successful in your career, seemingly good at whatever you put your hand to. You might devote your time in admirable ways, in caring for others. You might be the greatest of parents, but truly, if you have met with God, you will know you have nothing to show off and plenty to be ashamed of. Do you ever have those nightmares about going to a job interview? One where you arrive and you're left totally exposed, embarrassed, you've left your certificates at home, you've forgotten to put your trousers on. Each time you're asked a question to demonstrate your knowledge, the only response you can do is sing the wheels on the bus go round and round. Well, imagine an interview with God and you've worked all night getting your best suit 
ironed and pressed, updated your CV, printing it all out on the highest quality paper, references from the most important people you know. And as you arrive, as you stand before God, you're suddenly aware that your best clothes are tatty rags. Your CV seems like it has been printed out on toilet paper and has nothing on it. And the references are at best half-truths. We read, didn't we, at the beginning of the service from Isaiah 6, when Isaiah is in the temple. Isaiah was a gifted and godly preacher. If he were in ministry today, people would flock to hear him speak. But we read of that remarkable experience, a vision of God himself seated on his throne, high exalted the sheer scale of this vision is such that the train of God's robe fills the temple. God dwarfs everything. Angelic beings fly around declaring, holy, holy is the Lord. The whole earth is full with his glory. The foundations of the building shake at the announcement the temple fills with smoke and the gifted and godly prophet Isaiah is broken, isn't he? Woe is me, I am ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Isaiah knows he's lost. He doesn't get out his CV. He realizes he's utterly empty-handed and destitute. That word woe is a word, is a funeral word. As if in the sight of God, Isaiah starts calling people to gather for his own funeral. That word translated ruined literally means to melt away like butter in the sun. Even his lips betray him, unclean. He is not worthy to mouth the words of the angels for it would expose the shallowness of his own soul. Do you remember when Peter... Disciple Peter first meets Jesus, as recorded uh, by Luke in his gospel. Jesus has been teaching, sitting in Peter's boat while the crowd sat on the shore. And then afterwards, he suggests to Peter and his friends, they go out on the lake to fish. And this fisherman who thinks he knows a bit about fishing on Lake Galilee, thinks it's a pretty dumb idea because you don't fish in the daytime on Lake Galilee. And anyway, they'd been out the night before fishing and they didn't catch a thing But they humor Jesus, and when they do, they catch so many fish that the nets begin to break, the boat begins to sink. And do you remember Peter's reaction? He falls on his feet and says, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. Have you ever felt like that? Back in the 1950s, the preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones described the mood of his time in this way. Express yourself. Believe in yourself. Realize the powers that are innate within you and let the whole world see and marvel at them. If that was true then, how much more today? We live in a culture of affirmation. We're encouraged to tell one another how great we are. And apart from a miracle of God's grace, the experience of God himself, we delude ourselves and believe it. Jesus' words are countercultural. They are also counter our religious intuitions, aren't they? This belief that in order to win God's favor, we first need to live a life that will win or merit his favor. We need to think, we need to place something, some burden on us to prove ourselves, to win his love. How easy to puff oneself up with how committed we are to God. 
But friends, your spiritual CV and mine is empty. And yet Jesus says, blessed are those who understand their true condition. Poor in spirit. So let's ask, why? Why? Why is such a condition blessed according to Jesus? When Isaiah has this vision of the Lord, high and exalted, we've said, hasn't he? He pronounces woe as he recognizes his spiritual bankruptcy before God. But Jesus declares that such who find themselves owning their own spiritual destitution before God are blessed. They're opposite terms, woe and blessed. Where Isaiah pronounces woe upon himself, Jesus announces blessing. Of course, that is the twist in Isaiah's experience, isn't it? As he, broken by his own spiritual poverty, calls for people to gather for his funeral, God moves towards him in mercy. The angel takes the coal from the altar, places it upon Isaiah's lips, and announces that through God's provision, Isaiah's guilt is taken away and his sin is atoned for. He discovers not the wrath of God, but the grace and smile of God. And of course, Jesus, as he announces that blessed are the poor in spirit, is not pronouncing blessing because of qualities in the poor in spirit, but because God moves towards those who acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy with mercy. This beatitude is all about God's attitude towards you mercy that is the good news of the kingdom that is why jesus is, begins his ministry do you understand the way he does repent turn around turn back stop running and humbly return the kingdom of heaven has come we see the impact through page after page of the gospels as we witness people like peter who find themselves on their knees at Jesus' feet. Why are they there? Because they know they have nothing. They're out of options, at the end of their rope. Think of the leper who kneels at Jesus' feet and is cleansed. The demon-possessed man, Mark 5, who falls at Jesus' feet and is delivered the sinful woman in Luke 7 who weeps at Jesus' feet and is healed. In fact, just if you want to do something this afternoon, read through Mark chapter 5 and just marvel at this. Not only do you have the demon-possessed man, you have Jairus at Jesus' feet, desperate because his daughter is ill and about to die. And what will Jesus do? Raise her from the dead. And then you have, again, in that same chapter, that woman who is too embarrassed and ashamed even to look Jesus in the face because she's been bleeding for 12 years and thinks, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I will be healed. And of course, he's healed. Or Peter at Jesus' feet, what does Jesus say to him? Do not be afraid. In fact, you read through any of the gospel accounts and ask yourself, who are the blessed in the gospels? 
Who do you read of and think how wonderful to have experienced that personally and to a man, to a woman, somewhere in their story? Their emptiness is exposed, their spiritual bankruptcy and sin, and they throw themselves at the feet of Jesus and discover they have come to a throne of grace and mercy for their time of need. And here is the wonder. All who come to Jesus, any who come to Jesus, he never turns them away. There is a part of me perhaps particularly with this beatitude, but sometimes with all of them, that sometimes the beatitudes were spelt out a little bit more clearly, that the lines were drawn a little bit more thick, so that when it says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, I want it to read, blessed are those who confess their sins and put their trust in Jesus, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or those who blessed... or they who are blessed who recognize without the mercy of God they're going to hell. Wouldn't that be clearer? But notice, while in some ways that's of course exactly what Jesus is saying, but my clarifications emphasize more what we need to do. Jesus' way of saying it speaks of the shocking grace of God. Those who recognize they're bankrupt this is the best day of your life. Imagine you get into financial difficulties. You know it. Your monthly income has dropped drastically. Your expenditure is way above it. You haven't paid the mortgage for the last couple of months. You're late on the utility bills, and you're increasingly putting stuff on credit cards, paying off one through transferring the debt to another. The kitchen table is full of unopened letters which you know are red reminders demanding payment. Imagine one day you get a knock on the door and to your shock, it's the bank manager. And you dread what he's going to say. What do you do? He can see the bills unopened on the table as you invited him. Denial is useless. You break down. You confess the mess. And suddenly you discover, rather than producing documents about how the bank is going to repossess your house, he produces a check written in your name that covers all your debts, pays off your mortgage, and more so that in that moment you realize you will never have any financial worries ever again. Imagine you'd bank with them. Blessed in the poor are the poor in spirit, not friends, because they have proved how sorry they are. That's not what Jesus is saying. But because Jesus has come to you, sees right through you, sees it all, and says, do not be afraid. And as you look at him and say, if you are willing, you can make me clean, he says, big smile on his face, I am willing, be clean. And suddenly you realize, although you'll need to remind yourself of this again and again and again, you are secure with your Father in heaven for all eternity. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I hope you're all here this morning because you have an interest in spiritual things. 
and that deep down you have a longing for heaven, a longing not simply to live forever, but for a world in which sorrow and evil and suffering and sin are no longer here, to see the face of your Maker and know fully and truly His goodness and love, to receive His welcome, to feast at His table, to live in His house forevermore. What must I do, you ask? And Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for this is the kingdom of heaven. What must I do? And Jesus says, give up the pretense and come empty-handed, acknowledging your need. All you must do is throw yourself in unguarded surrender at the feet of Jesus. Thomas Thomas Watson, Puritan pastor, wrote a great book on the Beatitudes, says, those who are poor in spirit are rich men and women. This poverty, sorry, they are rich in poverty. This poverty entitles them to a kingdom, the kingdom that is forever and whose ruler is all mercy and love. Blessed are you. As you look at each half of the Beatitudes, as you think them over, they are the very things that the human heart most desperately longs for. Jesus says this is manifest in the rule of his kingdom. The true satisfaction that we long for is actually discovered outside the walls of the kingdom of this world. But in God himself, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, if I find in me longings that this world with all its beauty and brilliance cannot truly satisfy, it tells me I've been made for another world. This is the kingdom for which you've been made. And such wonder begins here. You and I, before our maker and judge, empty-handed, as we sang, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Only to discover this gospel truth. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you see? You cannot have this poverty without being rich. But friend, you will never have these riches without a recognition of just how poor you are. Jesus, full of love and grace, looks on such and promises them his very throne alongside him. And so to find yourself brought to a sense of your sin, seeing no goodness in yourself, and in such a posture to depend entirely on the mercy of Christ is to be truly blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so finally, how should those words shape us? How should they shape us? I've got four things for you. Firstly, be reminded your relationship to Christ is based on your wretchedness, not your worthiness. Let me say that again. Your relationship to Christ 
is based upon your wretchedness, not your worthiness. Nothing in my hand, I agree. If you're a Christian here, have an active awareness that you are still a sinner. Remember those words, 1 John 1, we read them earlier. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sin, he's faithful. He forgives us, he purifies us. Primarily confess your sin to Jesus. I hope you do that, not just in a general sense, but an awareness that the human heart, your human heart, my human heart, is the most deceitful of instruments. More deceitful than social media. Your heart and mine. Do you reflect? Do you confess your need? As you walk through struggle and difficulty, do you ever reflect on the ways this leads you to temptation and sin? I know it's hard. But do you ever reflect on the ways it leads you to temptation and sin? Do not pretend, but open your heart to the Lord. And let's not pretend to one another either. Be aware, even if you have been a Christian many years, you are still so poor. And isn't there something liberating in that? To recognize how you truly are and to recognize at the same time you are truly loved. It's what we crave. Friends, until we are poor in spirit, we are not capable of receiving grace. And so if you're not a Christian... My hope is you are caused to reflect on your standing before God. Today is a day of grace. Heaven draws near. Jesus comes to us to offer rescue. One day we will stand before Christ as our judge, and on that day we will be asked to give an account for our response to his offer of forgiveness. So what if you've lived your life believing you've got no need for salvation? You don't need his grace. Reflect on your standing before God. See, do you not need Jesus, the one who came to bind up the brokenhearted? Second, how do we leverage the awareness of our sin? Treasure Christ. Treasure Christ. Thomas Watson writes, until we are poor in spirit, Christ is never precious. Until we see our, our wants, we never see Christ's worth. What do the scriptures remind us? What do they tell us about Jesus? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. What does Jesus say say about himself? It's not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. See it? When a person sees himself as Isaiah pronouncing woe upon himself, then how precious the atoning work of Jesus, which declares your sin atoned for forever and your guilt taken away forever. That is your story, Christian. That is your song. You are an heir of salvation because you've been purchased by God, born of the Spirit, washed in his blood treasure Christ individually but brothers and sisters we have a responsibility to one another to treasure him corporately as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said the goal of all Christian community is to meet one another 
as the bringers of the message of salvation. Not just when we gather on a Sunday. Not just when we gather in home group. When you meet one another in the week, do you do so conscious that you're a messenger of salvation to your brother or sister in Christ, as well as, of course, to the wider world? The Christian needs another Christian who speaks the word of God to him. The word in the, friend of our bro- in, the, in the mouth of our brother and sister is so often, isn't it, stronger word of the gospel than the doubts that fester in our own hearts about our own salvation. But Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We need it again and again as we gather often, don't we, with discouragements, uncertainty, feelings of failure and shame, but blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Christ has died that you and I may call heaven's king ours, mine, that we may sing with those who dwell above, adoring, praising Jesus, king of love. Not only reflect on it in our praising and our singing, but churched also in our praying. As I said earlier, a person poor in spirit sees their daily need of grace, so is often on their knees. And a church that recognizes we stand by grace alone will be in prayer. Would you be shaped by the nature of this blessing? Gather to pray. Thirdly, super briefly, practice hospitality. He has washed our dirty feet and more. We have received mercy, so give mercy. That should reflect in the culture of this church. This church is a hospital, not a gym. We are all patients who need Jesus, no one better than another. The only slight difference is that some of us might have been under his care, having his treatment, taking his medicine for that bit longer. The only difference. That should be our culture. Fourthly, here is an encouragement for our struggles. We'll see this, I think, with each of the Beatitudes. There is strength in Jesus' words for our daily discipleship in the battle with sin and the trials that we walk through. You see, the poor in spirit are debtors to mercy alone. God does not owe them. He does not owe us. We owe everything to God. But, and this reality is really important, His mercy secures us. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We do not walk the Christian life in our own strength. God does not stand us on our own feet and say, it's up to you now, off you go. No, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. It's that image of being tied to another, isn't it? Image, in this case, of being tied to Jesus himself. He helps us to live out our faith, dependent on him, secured by him. Remember those lovely words in Isaiah 53? For this is the, what the high and exalted one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. We might say the poor in spirit.
to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contract. So not only are you not alone, there is continued grace for that daily walk and the promise that he will get you home. He who did not spare his own son, but gave it up him up for us all, how much more will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Recognizing our poverty in spirit keeps you tethered to Jesus at his feet, the best place to be. So come to Jesus, he is enough. Come to Jesus, rest in his love. Let me pray for you. Father, we do thank you for the good news. Lord, while we don't admit it often enough, particularly to one another, Lord, we confess the brokenness of our lives. We confess again the sin that has entangled and damaged the things we have willfully run after rather than seeking you. And Lord, it leaves us weary, it leaves us broken, it leaves us addicted to things that would harm us. And yet, Lord God, as we bow before you, we trust the declaration of your Son that he comes in mercy to bring hope to the destitute. Thank you for the mercy of Christ to sinners like us. Lord, we pray that our hearts would be tethered to him, that we would know our need, we would receive his mercy daily, and we would be those transformed by it. Lord, encourage our hearts. Thank you for your salvation that does not depend on us, but is all on Christ. Thank you for the burden that removes. Thank you for that he stood in our place. May the gospel shape us. May that truth give joy to all those who are here trusting in Christ. And may these words we pray be sweet offering to those, sweet invitation to those thinking about these things to see again the love of Christ who demands nothing of us except that we come to him, acknowledge our need, for he will save to the utmost. In Jesus' name, amen.